All right, welcome everybody. Who's ready to get into God's Word? All right, I love it. We're going to do exactly that together today, and it's good to see you, good to welcome you, good to be back with you. I was gone last weekend, but good to see all of you who I can see, and good to have those of you with us that I can't see. If you're behind the camera or you're in your living room, you're watching online, welcome to you, to those on our Moon Campus. Good to see you here with us joining in, and also on our uh, classic venue. Wherever you're joining in, we're glad to be together. Now, as we get started, all of you know this little phrase, over the top, and you know what it means to go over the top or to be over the top. So what we're going to be talking about today. Over the top means like something that's beyond extravagant. It would be like Serena Williams' wedding dress that came in at a whopping $3.5 million dollars. That would be over the top. And that's only one of three that she wore on her wedding day. Over the top would be also something like this 105,000 square foot home, single family home in Bel Air, California. It features, among other things, five swimming pools. It, it has its own working salon and spa. It's got a 4,000 square foot bedroom. Master bed, 4,000 square foot master bedroom. This is just one of the closets in the bedroom. That's what this house is, is all about. It's got 20 other bedrooms and 49 bathrooms. And with all of that, all I can think is how nasty it would be to have to scrub all those toilets. Now, I doubt that the owner is probably doing that, but that's what I think about. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. It's off the market, it was just sold. And so you're not going to be able to pick it up. So sorry about that. Something else that's described as being over the top is a car that's called the American Dream. That is it. It comes in at a little over 100 feet long. It has 26 wheels and seats 75. And if that's not enough for you, it also has a swimming pool, a jacuzzi, miniature golf, and its own helipad on the car. That's this car. This is an over the... Now, as I look at that limo, I think it should also have a bowling alley, right? But I guess that would be a stretch. So anyway, these things are all over the top, and we know what it means to be over the top. And today we're actually going to see some other things that are very much over the top as we come to the text of Scripture that we've come in our studies through the book of Romans. And that passage is in Romans chapter 3, the end of the passage. It's where we're going to be, and I invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible, grab your Scripture journal, and open up. It's page 18 in your journal. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31 are where we're going to be looking at today. It's where we've come in our ongoing studies through the book of Romans that we're calling Romans. Grace changes everything, and today we're going to see a lot more grace on display and what difference that makes for us, and it indeed changes everything. We're going to see that today. So our author for Romans is who? Paul, the Apostle Paul, he is our guide that has been giving us all of these amazing things. And the Apostle Paul, as we have seen so far, has been giving us a lot of deep theological truth and also some tremendously practical principles to help us understand how it is that God would have us to order and to live our lives. And all the way along, he has been dripping in these little bits 
of information and theology and practical wisdom for us to take and understand and apply. Well, today, the drip becomes a water cannon because he's just going to blast it our direction, a water cannon, or he gives us both barrels, or he gives us extra layers, or whatever metaphor you want to use, it is all here. It is most definitely over the top. Now, don't, me, don't allow that to scare you off at all, because this doesn't mean that it's too dense to understand. It doesn't mean it's too esoteric to apply. You're going to get this. You're going to understand what he is talking about here in this text. The reason it's over the top is is because of all that it clarifies for us and the critical nature of what he gives us when it comes to understanding the work of God and the person of Jesus and what the gospel is all about and what grace has to do with the things that we are talking about in this series and specifically in this passage. It is that deep and it is that important. In fact, Martin Luther said this about this passage we're looking at today, that it's the chief point and the very central place of the epistle, of the letter. And of, all, and of the whole Bible. He's saying this passage is that important, and other theologians have backed him up and believe very much that same thing. That's what we're going to be looking at today. I hope you're excited like I am. I'm also calling this over the top because this prefix over seems necessary in order for us to really get a grasp of the significance of what is here. And so we'll be bringing that up as we make our way through the different points we're going to look at today. And we see it right at the outset as Paul describes for us our overwhelming need. That's where we get started, with an overwhelming need. The book of Romans started with Paul laying some groundwork for us to understand the nature of grace and the nature of the gospel. And for the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1, he lays that out for us. It's good news, and you get sort of drawn in. It's like, well, this is awesome. And then you get to verse 18 of chapter 1, and on through what we looked at last week, as Pastor Jason very helpfully took us through that passage at the beginning of Romans 3. And for basically those two chapters, Paul just nails us with all of this understanding of the law of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law given to Moses, given ultimately to the Israelites, but through Moses. And it's given so that the people would understand what God's expectation was for them, so that they would know how it is that they were supposed to live. And he lays it out for them so that they would understand, so that they would be able to march forward appropriately. And, of course, the Israelites were not able to live up to all of the moral implications of the law, but it doesn't mean they didn't try. In fact, they tried very hard, and the harder that they tried, the more that they gained confidence in what they were doing relative to the law was something that God was going to ultimately bless and look on them with tremendous favor. And Paul saw that mindset going on in his day, so he gets really, really clear about the ominous nature of those two chapters that he has written about the law, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3 and verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20, the very end of that, he sort of adds this exclamation point that I want to go back to because it helps to set the stage for what it is we're marching into then in this next section. And so what he says there where he ended last week in chapter 3, verse 20, is this. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. By the works of the law, by following after the law, by trying to live up to all of its precepts and commands, nobody is going to be justified based on that. 
That would be quite a blow to the Jews of that time because that's what they're relying on. The law was their get-out-of-hell-free card that they were wanting to play, that they were trying to play, that they were trying to live up to. And so Paul works here to take that off the table, and as he does so, it leaves them in a place of overwhelming need because the thing that they thought was going to supply for them did not or does not supply. That's what he's saying. And here's the thing. Religious, religiously minded people have continued to follow that strategy down through the ages. Now, for some, it was trying to live up to those same laws. For some, it's trying to live up to other laws or other regulations or other pillars or other sacraments or whatever it might be. Living up to the law, essentially, is the backbone of every religion, whatever that law might happen to be defined to be according to that religious system. We think that if we can just do enough, do the right things, live according to the principles that are given down to us, that that is going to be the thing that leaves us in a place of finding favor with God. That's what the Jews thought. And Paul's writing, he's saying, I don't want you to go down that road because it's just taking you to a place of destruction instead of a place of blessing, which is where you think it's going. So Paul is helping us to understand this. And the fact is that it's not just those other religions out there where this can be a problem. It can creep into Christianity as well. It can creep into the church, and in previous weeks, we've talked about some of the different things that, that we rest in or that we might run after, and you can go and review those for yourself. But Paul's message to us is the same as it is to the Romans, that your works will not justify in fact, that they cannot save you. And it's because of this, because rules can reform behaviors, but they cannot transform hearts. Rules can reform behaviors, make you act differently, but they cannot transform hearts. It's like the child at the dinner table. It's being forced by his mother to eat all of the peas that are there on his plate, but he doesn't want to do it, and he defiantly looks back at his mother, and she's not giving up, and he knows he's going to have to eat them, and so he says to her in that defiant tone, you can make me eat them, but you can't make me like them, right? Or it's like it was when I was growing up with, with my younger sister. There were times that, that uh, we would get in fights because she'd do something bad, and I was concerned with righteousness, and she wasn't following. And, and so we'd get in these fights, and, and inevitably our parents would step in and, and get us to stop. And the way that they wanted to make sure that we were past what we were fighting about is they wanted us to kiss and make up. How many of you had parents who made you kiss and make up with a sibling? All right. Are you still in counseling too about that? Yeah, right? I mean, that, any 10-year-old boy does not want to kiss his sister in the best of times, and certainly not when they're fighting. And so, and, but they did eventually force that to happen, and, and I'd never go for the lips, though that's what they always wanted. I'd kind of brush by the cheek, and if I could do it and make it look like I touched the cheek and I didn't really, that was better still. But, but they were going to make sure that it happened. Well, here's the thing. I followed the law that was laid down, but it didn't change my spirit. Not at all, because what we're saying is that rules can reform behaviors, but they cannot transform hearts. And that's very much what Paul is saying to us here. What the law does is reveal God's standard and show us how far we are away from actually living up to it. That's the effectiveness or the benefit of the law. The law made it abundantly plain, as Paul points out in verse 23, one of the very best-known verses in all of the Bible, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That might be one of the very first passages or verses of Scripture that you ever taught if you were taught 
passages or, or verses of Scripture. But if your experience was like mine is, it was taught to me absent of context. Because here's the thing, if you think that you're falling short of God's glory, that you have sinned, you know that there's a problem, and so the natural thing that you go about is like trying to stop sinning or trying to do other things that counterbalance the sin that you've been living out, effectively trying to live according to the law, trying to rule keep in order to gain God's favor, which is exactly the opposite of what the context is telling us gains favor with God. If we'd be taught that in its context, or if we can come to understand that today in its context, we'll understand that going after rule-keeping as a way to gain God's favor is one of the very things that it's excluding right from the very start, even if, as it tells us that we fall short of the glory of God. It has no power to fix us. It just rec- helps us to recognize how overwhelming our need really is. So, with the weight of that realization on us through these two chapters of him hammering it home, and now this summary that comes in verse 20 that the law cannot justify, he turns this very interesting and amazing corner in verse 21 as he just starts it out, and he says this, but now, in the midst of everything is going bad for you, that this is not going to accomplish what you need, and you're leaning into it, and it's not accomplishing, and you recognize your overwhelming need, he says but now. That is good news. Paul is introducing hope, these words of hope, in the midst of this context he's been speaking in. Or, think of thought of another way, if, if, if the bad guys are about to win the day, this is the cavalry riding in on their white horses. But now, there's going to be some sort of salvation or provision for you. Or for you Trekkies, this is like, remember the trash compactor scene? where the walls are closing in and closing in and it looks like Luke and Leia and Han and Chewie are going to lose their lives. And just about when they get smushed, all of a sudden C-3PO figures it out and uh, saves the day. But now he steps in. Or, for those of you who are Steelers fans, this is the the hope on the very last play of the 1972 playoff game when Franco Harris makes that amazing shoestring catch of a lifetime. But now there's a change. It looked like it was going one direction, but now it's going somewhere else. Those are all amazing examples to be sure. But Paul gives us the real deal. And he says this is the real but now he wants us to understand. And I would say, okay, but, but now what? right? He's just said, but now, it's like, okay, tell us the rest. He does. Verse 21 goes on. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says that true righteousness is found not in the law. It's not found through the law. He says it's found apart from the law. It's just the next step in the logical conclusion that you would draw based on what he is saying. It is found here, verse 22 says, not through the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's in the midst of mankind's most overwhelming need that Paul has introduced hope that we have a chance to recognize, all right, this is not going to do it. We've all tried to go there. There's something better. There's something different. 
And that takes us to the second of the things that he points out to us, the second over that he gives us, and that is overpowering grace. He points out going on here, overpowering grace. We read about the nature of this grace and how it works as we pick up on Paul's words in verse 24. If you look at it, he writes that the law couldn't do anything for our sinful selves, but that we are, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, there's a lot there. This is part of that drinking from the fire hose part that we were talking about here a minute ago. Commentators and pastors fall all over themselves trying to explain this. And so I want to take and distill down things from people like Keller and Moo, one of my uh, seminary professors, and, and Greer and Hughes, and, and kind of distill this down and, and hopefully make it understandable as we make our way through this. But to do that, we need to understand what some of these words are that Paul is just dropping into this verse and a half that we just read that is so rich and thick and full. So let's get into this. Paul says, he starts here by saying that we're justified by his grace as a gift. Now we've seen justified before. In fact, we've defined it before in this way. We've said it's to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous. But the bigger question is really how? How are we declared righteous? It's a very important question. In fact, the question is as big as the Protestant Reformation because Martin Luther said that it is this doctrine of justification that caused him to recognize the error of the way of the existing church of that day and to actually break fellowship and break you know, participation in that body and move off in a completely different direction. What we're talking about right here, in fact, this very verse he's talking about, it's that important. Prior to that time, the belief that was that justification took place over a period of time through a series of steps or through a series of, of sacraments. And if you lived out those well enough and consistently enough and appropriately enough, then you would be welcomed in then you would be thought to be righteous or declared righteous because of this process you went through in working your way toward your own righteousness. What that sounds like is a lot like the law that Paul has just been talking about. It sounds a lot like doing works to try to earn your way into God's favor. Left to ourselves, though, that's what we're going to do. We naturally gravitate towards some system that gives us something to do because we feel that we need to engage in some way. We need to do something for ourselves that is going to ultimately get God to think positive and good thoughts toward us. Luther, however, made it clear that this word justified or justification doesn't mean any such thing. The word justified is a legal term. It's a legal term that refers to something that is declared in one moment in time, in once and for all sort of fashion, a legal term. Think of it kind of like this. Imagine that you and I were together somewhere, and, and then afterwards you made this accusation that I had punched you in the face. And so you took me to court over that for assault, I guess. And uh, so we're there in court, and the judge is like, okay, well, I'm going to need some evidence. And so you pull out a picture of you with a black eye, and then you... you produce a witness who was there who said you were knocked out for like 15 minutes because of the excessive force and amazing blow that you received from me, of course. 
And uh, not only that, but uh, you were whimpering as you were just coming up off the ground because of the power of the blow that you had sustained, right? And so the judge is like, well, I guess I'm going to declare you guilty. But then he looks at me and he says, you couldn't knock out a flea. And so I'm going to declare you innocent. And he lets me go. He says, you are declared innocent. It is once and for all. It is done. It is settled. It is the final decision, and it is made in that moment. The judge doesn't say, well, tell you what, I know you're guilty, but tell you what, what we'll do is you go and do these seven or eight different things that I want you to do, and if you do all of them well enough, then come back, and I'll declare you innocent. I'll say you never did it. That's not how it would work. The judge would never say that. And God doesn't work in that fashion. See, to be justified is not a process. It's a declaration. It's God saying that you are justified, that you are innocent, not because you earned your way there, but because it's been credited to you by that which has done, been done by Christ. It's not a matter of earning. It's a matter of receiving. In our sin, however, we're not innocent. We're guilty, completely guilty. So how is it that we would be declared righteous or justified at all? Important question. And Paul knows that that would be the next logical question that would be asked in his argument, and so he doesn't wait for it to be asked. He just answers it as verse 24 continues. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here's another. Redemption is an act where something is gained in exchange for a price or in exchange for something else. We don't We don't use the word redemption very much in our just common daily lives. Sometimes you'll you'll hear it in in conjunction with a coupon that you might take and you might uh, take it to the store and, and you might offer it to them. And in exchange for the coupon, you can redeem the coupon and you'll be given then a discount or some some item, something like that. Or you can also see it through the great theologian Chuck E. Cheese. Right? I remember when our kids were younger going to Chuck E. Cheese and eating that disgusting pizza and playing those games like whack-a-mole where you would get tickets and then you'd take those tickets and have them redeemed at the counter. You'd trade them in as a price for those worthless trinkets that you would get back, right? Now, that's just my own unbiased opinion about the experience at Chuck E. Cheese. You might have something else, but regardless of what you think about it, it's one of the contexts where we have this sort of idea of redemption. Something is given in exchange for something else. Now, in Paul's day, it was oftentimes used, this term, in relationship to a slave who was redeemed from his slavery or he was set free. And that's ultimately what Paul is trying to, to draw the comparison about as it relates to our circumstance, that we have been redeemed because of the work that Jesus has done. He has paid something in exchange for his payment on the cross. We have been redeemed. We're declared justified because we have been redeemed by the work of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. So, he goes on with the fire hose still turned on, verse 25, to let us know that Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here we've got another word, propitiation, that we never use in our common conversation day to day. 
But uh, here it is, and it's a great word in this context because it's perfect for what's going on here. Propitiation means that God's wrath is satisfied, that His wrath is satisfied and it is taken out of the way. Now, it's not that God just decided to have His just to have grace on sin now instead of his wrath, or he decided to just look the other way from your sin, and so wrath isn't necessary because he's just kind of letting you slide. That's not what's going on here at all. He couldn't do that and maintain his moral integrity. He couldn't do that and maintain that he is a just God because the, the things that have been done that require this wrath are complete obsession in a work against him, in going our own direction, in going our own way of doing our own thing. It's rebellion against God and all that he's created, and it must be punished completely, and we were the ones who were in line for that punishment, he's saying. But God found a way to maintain his moral integrity and his justice, and at the same time extend forgiveness to all of mankind who he desired to pour out his love upon. And the way that he did that was to turn all of that wrath, instead of on us who deserve it, back onto himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who goes to the cross. There are no compromises being made here. There are no backroom deals. There's no winking going on like, yeah, we're not really going to judge that sin. No, he is fully and completely extending and expressing and pouring out his wrath as it needs to be poured out on the sin of mankind, only it is placed on Jesus who willingly takes it to the cross. Beautiful, beautiful grace. It's overpowering grace. And Paul says it's received by faith. Now, about this faith, faith is only as effective as the object that it's placed in. Something important for us to understand because sometimes we get this wrong and we move our way down a path that, again, we think we're set up favorably when we're really not. Because we can have faith in the wrong things. I can have absolute, unshakable faith in the notion that I can swim all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. I can have complete confidence in that because, after all, I've swum across the Beaver River. And, and so it's basically the same thing, right? So I've got that kind of confidence, and I go to the shore, and I jump in, and I start swimming. But before land is even out of sight, I need to be rescued because I'm drowning. As much as I was confident and had full faith that I could do that. You, on the other hand, might have complete faith in a modern jetliner, and you jump on that plane, and five hours later, you're on the other side of the Atlantic. What's different? We both had absolute, unshakable faith in what we were believing. The difference was the object of that faith. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying that it needs to be an appropriate object. It needs to be placed in Christ, not simply in something else, because we tend to put our faith in all sorts of different things. This is where we need to do some examination, because lots of people have religious faith, but they're not in Christ. It's not doing anything to save them because it's not placed in the right object. You can have faith in your spiritual upbringing. You can have faith in your Bible knowledge. You can have faith in your morality. You can have faith in how good you look as compared to other people when it comes to the sin you see in their lives. Those are all uh, like having 
faith in the law, really, which is what Paul is working so hard to take off the table. The object of our faith must be Jesus Christ and Him alone and the work that He has done on the cross and that alone. As soon as we start to take it off of that and place it in any other place, something that we've done, something that we've accomplished, something that we believe, then we end up in a place where we're trusting in the wrong thing, thinking all the while that we are drawing closer to God when really we're falling further and further away from Him. And Paul's concerned about that because he sees it in these people in Rome, and he writes it, and the same concern would be his regarding us as well because we can go down that same road. And why did Jesus do all of that? Verse 25 goes on. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This might be something you've wondered about in the past. Well, here Paul's going to go ahead and answer it. These former sins that Paul is talking about have to do with those that were committed before the cross. Basically, Old Testament people are in view here. Before Jesus ever came and went to the cross. Paul is saying that those people, those sins, weren't actually forgiven at that time. Rather, he says, they were just passed over for a time. See, the blood of goats and rams wasn't sufficient to take over or to provide forgiveness for or atonement for the vileness of the sin of all of mankind. What that is is a representation of the fact that there's another lamb that one day is going to come that is going to die to take away the sins of all mankind. And what Paul is saying is that those sins are just being patiently set aside for a moment until Christ comes, until He can fully take them out of the way. By by the repentance and the faith of Abraham and David and others, it's credited to them, their faith, as righteousness until Jesus comes to ultimately settle the matter. That's what he's talking about here. Paul adds, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This goes back to what we were saying earlier about the fact that Jesus cannot or that God cannot overlook sin, that it has to be judged. And he says that makes God just, but because God takes it onto himself in the person of Jesus, it also makes him the one who justifies. So the verse says he's both the just and the justifier, all in himself, and providing for us this overpowering sense of grace, a grace that changes everything. There's no greater blessing that we could ever desire that we would ever receive than what he is offering here, and Paul is trying to help us to understand the depth and the meaning behind it all. And it leads to one more final step that Paul is espousing, and it is overcoming humility overwhelming need we have, overpowering grace He provides, and here we see overcoming humility that is necessary in us. After the limitations of the law and the glorious provisions of His grace, Paul then asks this as he goes on, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of us relying in the law, relying in the things that we can do, the things that we boast about having accomplished on our own? What, what, then what becomes of our boasting? He says, answers it himself, it's excluded. It's of no good. It's of no use. By what kind of law? By a law of works? We already know the answer to that because he's been nailing that all the way through this passage. No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. As Keller says, boasting and believing are opposites. You can't have both. If you have one of them, you don't have the other one. Why? Because they are mutually exclusive. Yet how often do we try to walk the line between those two? Sure, we know we need a little bit of Jesus. I mean, he died on the cross, and so there's something we need to appropriate from that. But at the same time, I still like to be in control. I like to be the master of my own fate. I like to make my own decisions. And what Paul is saying here is that maintaining control is pride. Plain and simple. Maintaining control is pride, and it negates true faith. It tells us our faith is not fully in God, which means that we're not experiencing. Whenever we try to do it ourselves, whenever we take any pride in what we are accomplishing, where there is not this sort of overcoming humility, what there is is an absence of the experience of the fullness of God's grace. We're setting ourselves apart from it. And it's not something that comes as a blessing in our lives. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, circumcised with the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith. Those are the Gentiles. See, the law was given to whom? The Jews or the Gentiles? The Jews. It was given to the Jews. So if salvation came through the law, then salvation would have only been restricted to one group, the Jews. Paul says, no, 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 that's not the way that is. Jesus came to provide salvation for everyone, for Jews and Gentiles. So it's not that the, the, he's saying, not that the Jews get there by the law. He says, rather, both the Jews, the circumcised, and the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, they all get there by faith. He says, that's the difference. That's the change. That's what God has accomplished. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, of course, after all of what we have just seen, what he's just been hammering over and over and over again, the answer is yes, of course. Of course we do that. But that's not what he says. After all of that, it's not what he says. Look at this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Does that sound confusing? Does it sound like Paul is contradicting himself in what he's saying here? Yeah, it absolutely sounds that way, but he's not. He's not. Let me explain this. Let me show you what's going on. He's still as firm as ever that the law is a means of salvation, is completely empty. But with that understanding clearly in our minds and in our hearts, he says there's still some value in the law. He says don't just throw the whole thing out. There are a couple of things, in fact, he says here, that are benefits of of the law, even in the day we live in, which is a day of grace and a day of the gospel. He says there are a couple of benefits of the law. One is that it still shows us the way. The law still shows us the way. Just because the law can't save doesn't mean that it isn't still something that is there to give us what God's desire would be for how we would live. Now, some of it, certainly, like the sacrificial system, we can discard, we can throw out altogether because we have a better sacrifice who came in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So yeah, that doesn't have a benefit for us, but that doesn't mean that the moral aspects of the law aren't still things that we should understand and take and live by. It's been God's intention from the very start. Things like the Ten Commandments are still the moral law of God that He would desire us to live 
after and not throw out. He doesn't want us to have idols or to covet or to kill or to steal or any of the, There's still tremendous value. It still shows us the way. That's one of the things. Another thing that it does for us is that it still shows us our need. still shows us our need. If we were able to perfectly live up to everything that is expected in the law, we could say, I can justify myself, and we'd be right, and we should pursue that, and we should go after that, but we can't, and we fail again and again, and because the righteous standard of God is out there for us to see and to learn and to understand and to judge our lives against, it is showing us our need again and again and again. So we don't just throw it all out. We don't just discard it and say, well, that was for them, and now we have Jesus. There's still a benefit, and that's what Paul is saying. Are we going to throw out the law now because we have grace, because we have Jesus, because we have faith? By no means, he says. We still uphold the law. It's clear that Paul is going over the top to describe the work of Jesus, and it's clear that the work of Jesus is over the top as well. But here's the thing. What that requires of you and me is that we would also live over the top. That we would also be engaged just as fully and completely as Paul was, as Christ was. That's the call on our lives. Jesus did not bear the wrath of God that you deserve so that you could go and live some casual spiritual life. He didn't. He came and died the death that we deserved, took the wrath of God upon himself fully and completely so that we might be completely sold out, over the top, to God. That's what all of this demands. That's what all of this requires of us. So ask yourself, what does it require of me? As we try to bring this, wrap this all up, what does that require of you? When you think about it, well, for you, it might be that you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. To recognize, I've been going after too many other things. I've been resting in the wrong things, in my attendance at this, or, or my comparison to this other person, or my morality, or my Bible knowledge, or whatever it might happen to be that I need to stop resting in all of these ancillary things and just put my faith completely and only and solely in Jesus Christ. This might be that moment for you, that God is calling you and penetrating your heart through all that He's done. Or for you, it might be to finally get serious about completely living out the faith that you express, the faith that you confess, Remember how Paul starts Romans? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. What's the other word for servant? Slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that God is calling you to be a servant as in a slave of Christ? That all of life would be devoted to Him and for His purposes? doesn't mean necessarily going into full-time ministry, but using the work that you're in as a full-time ministry to be completely engaged, to not be making your spirituality about when you show up at church or listen online or 
when you might happen to have a Bible study, but rather that it's all of life, all the time. Whether for you it's getting serious about the faith that you confess or whether for you it is giving your heart and your life over to Jesus for the first time. What we're being called to here fully and completely is to go over the top. What would that look like in your life tomorrow? In the day after, in the week beyond? What change would that demand of you in how you're following through on the gratitude you have in your heart for the fact that God justified you, redeemed you, became the propitiation for your sin, taking the wrath of God out of the way. That demands something of us. And that something is going over the top. What are you going to do to live that through? Heavenly Father, what an amazing, amazing passage. So full and rich and deep, we can see why Luther considered it to be right at the central place of this letter and of the Bible. It is what you've come to do through your Son Jesus on our behalf. And Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for providing for us what we couldn't provide for ourselves. Thank you for Paul pointing out to us that all of these things that we've run after to try to find your favor are the wrong things, and we need to, to rest in what you have done completely, 100%. Not running after our way, but your way. Not trying to provide for ourselves, but resting in what you've provided for us. Not trying to keep control out of our pride, but experiencing overcoming humility. Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray for the one who has been confessing faith but needs to get serious about truly living that out. Lord, I pray that you would give us that courage not to live those things out so that we might gain more favor with God in terms of finding a greater salvation, but out of gratitude for what you've already done for us. And Lord, for the one who has yet to put their faith completely in Jesus Christ, for the first time, maybe they've been getting confidence out of something else, some law-keeping, some rule-keeping. Lord, I pray for these friends that in this moment, there would be a conviction and a connection to you, confessing their sin, finding your forgiveness, resting completely through faith in what you have done. Lord, we want to be over-the-top believers. And so I pray that you would help us to understand what that looks like day to day, starting today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day. Lord, thank you for the truth of the gospel, for the power of all that you have done, and for Paul just bringing it to us straightforward, head-on, hard-hitting. Lord, I pray that it would impact who we are and how we live. As we go over the top, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.